Let's all stand. There seems to be a lot going on in our congregation uh, as of late. And uh, so I wonder if, before we start our service, if we could pray for just a moment uh, God's protection, God's encouragement. On this congregation. There are trials that we could look at and say, that's not a big deal, dude. Just pray through and, and you'll be fine. Uh, and that may be true for you. But for the individual going through it, it, it is a big deal. And so it's it's easy to look at things from our perspective and from our experience level and our uh, our walk with God and kind of minimize other people's trials. Of course, we're going to maximize our own, and uh, that's how it works. But uh, let's just remember that uh, when when someone's going through a trial, a situation, a test, whatever it may be, uh, it's probably a big deal for that person. And so uh, just try to look at it from their perspective, and it's certainly a big deal to God. God has allowed that in that person's life for a reason. And so uh, we want to pray that that reason would be accomplished, that whatever needs to be learned is learned, whatever needs to be received is received, so that they can move on with their walk with God stronger, closer, more perfected. Amen. God has a plan for this church. He has a plan for each of us. And that is, by and large, how we're going to get there, is through much tribulation. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. I am so thankful for your manifest presence here this evening. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness to us. Even in the midst of test and trial, storm and tempest, you are there with us in the midst of it. Help us, Lord Jesus, to not look for a way out necessarily, to not look for the quick fix, but help us, Lord Jesus, to see the purpose of this, to receive it as such, as from the Lord. Help us to receive what you have for us, the lesson, the, the, the knowledge, the, the spiritual insight, whatever it needs to be, whatever it may be. Help us to receive that. Help us to grow through it. Help us to come through the other side perfected purified, more like you. Hallelujah, Jesus. We do laud and magnify you. We thank you, Lord, for your so great faithfulness to us, to the covenant promises you've given us. Thank you, Jesus, for your continuing mercy and grace and patience toward us. Hallelujah, Jesus. Our faith and our hope and our trust and our confidence is in you. It is in you alone. You only can save. You only can deliver, provide, heal, restore. You only can provide whatever it is we have need of tonight. Moving forward, you only can provide what we need each and every day. And only you can save. Minister in this place wondrously tonight, I pray. Gloriously in our midst today. Lord Jesus, we, we turn to You, the Lord our God. 
Our eyes and our ears are attent unto you, to your voice, to your moving. You have our full attention tonight, thou most high God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Minister, in this place I pray, let your great name be magnified here. Let the name of Jesus Christ be worshipped and glorified here. We will wait upon you. We will minister unto you tonight with our worship and with our praise and with our giving of thanks. Let your name be glorified here tonight. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. You can be seated. Amen. We're going to continue our study on the apostles tonight. Last week was an introduction, uh, what the apostles were, what that means, what discipleship is, uh, kind of a general overview of the, the multitudes, the 70, the 12, and the inner circle, as it were. Tonight we're going to be starting on specific individuals. Uh, we'll be focusing on the 12. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about Andrew. Andrew, poor guy, isn't really mentioned a whole lot, although he seems to be a very important part of this 12, this group. Mark chapter 1 and verse, verses 16 through 18 says this, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Okay, so here we see the introduction of Andrew, Simon as well. We're going to try to focus on Andrew, although some of these others are going to pop in and out as we progress. All four Gospels identify Andrew as the brother of Simon Peter. Now, if you have a brother or sister, that's not necessarily a good thing to be known as someone's brother. It's really fun after you've become married and you're known as so-and-so's husband. <laughs> that's always a good time. <laughs> uh, that's a joke. Yes, that's not a good time. No bueno. <clears throat> so, to be known as Simon Peter's brother, I don't know, maybe, maybe that wasn't a thing in their culture then. It sure is today. And so, uh, being known in that capacity is, it's kind of a diminishing title. It's kind of a uh, uh, placing him underneath Simon Peter, as it were. Both brothers were from Bethsaida, a fishing village located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, as was Philip. I should uh, take a step back and state that most of what you have in your notes, and indeed probably most of what I have here, is going to be information only. Uh, a lot of this is, is going to be uh, biblical and historical records, apocryphal uh, accounts of these disciples. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me 
how that, you know, how what we find about the apostles, you know, particularly what I find fascinating is where they ended up ministering and, and where and how they died. And so I'm digging up literally as much information as I can find to give you guys. I will let you know if it's uh, historically accurate or if it's a little bit fantastical. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at all of it. And at the end, we're going to try to uh, examine that individual's life. And we're going to try to, to uh, figure out what can we glean from that person's life. Because everybody has something to teach us. Whether it's good or bad, uh, we can be a good example or we can be an example of what not to do. <laughs> My pastor, uh, <clears throat> there was an individual that I knew when I was not really a new convert, but pretty close. Uh, and this individual was, you know, really bubbly and really gregarious. And she came in and uh, and uh, she was there for a little bit. And our pastor was there as well. And then they, they had to leave. And and <laughs> she turned around and said, Are "You guys gonna miss me when I'm gone." And uh, our pastor, who you got to understand, is is was pretty old school. I mean, he was. Brother McGinnis was talking about this. You know, his sleeves are always down to here, except on a a, a work day when we were doing a construction at the church. Then he'd unbutton it and roll it up once. And that was, I mean, he was he was going to get down and do some work then. <laughs> so that was that was my pastor. And he turns around, looks at her, and says, well, you know, some people brighten a room by coming into it. And other people brighten a room by leaving it. <laughs> I had no idea where that came from. I don't know if he was trying to be funny, but the way we looked at, at Pastor Williams, it, it, it didn't come across as funny. <laughs> I was very embarrassed for this individual, but I, I, I laughed later. I laughed a little bit later because then it was hilarious. I didn't know what to do in the room there at the moment. So we can learn something from everybody, and we can certainly learn something from Andrew's life. Simon Peter and Andrew's calls. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting way ahead of myself. Uh, both Matthew and Mark state that Andrew and Simon Peter were living in Capernaum and working as fishermen when Jesus formally called them to follow him. According to their account, they both promptly responded to his call and left everything to become his disciples. What a good response that is. <clears throat> no, I got to take care of this first. No, well, I'm not really sure. No, well, what are the pros and cons? Uh, they just left everything. Right there, on the ground, and started following Jesus Christ. I appreciate that. In the accounts of both Matthew and Mark, Andrew and Simon Peter are closely associated with James and John. Together with Simon Peter, James and John, Andrew kind of makes up the three and a half 
inner circle. Sometimes Andrew is included, sometimes he isn't. Andrew is mentioned in relation with Simon Peter, James and John in Mark 1 and 29. Uh, It's James and John that accompany Jesus to Simon Peter and Andrew's house where Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. When Jesus made his temple pronouncement in Mark chapter 13, it was Andrew, along with Simon Peter, James, and John, that asked him about it. And that began a discourse into eschatology. It began a discourse into the end times, the destruction of Jerusalem, and those, kind, <coughs> excuse me, those kinds of topics. These four men uh, occupy the first four positions in every apostolic list we find in Scripture. We see in John chapter 1 that before he became a follower of Jesus, Andrew was also a disciple of John the Baptist. John's testimony of who Jesus was introduced Andrew to Jesus. After this, Andrew introduced Simon Peter, his brother, to Jesus. And in John's gospel, Andrew appears frequently with Philip. Again, it makes sense because they're from the same town. John 1.44 states they were from the same town. John 6 states that it was Philip and Andrew that interacted with Jesus during the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, Jesus asks Philip, what can we do to feed these guys? Andrew kind of jumps in and says, well, there's a boy here with a few loaves and fishes, but what is that amongst this great big crowd? Then, of course, he proceeds to feed every one of them. John chapter 12 shows them serving as facilitators between a mentioned Greek people and Jesus during his final week. We'll talk more about that later. So Andrew comes from the Greek name Andreas, meaning manly. He was a manly man. It's a Greek name, not an Aramaic or a Hebrew name. Conversely, Simon Peter's is an Aramaic name. Interesting. He's mentioned only 12 times in all of Scripture, directly, and more often than not, he's referred to again as Simon Peter's brother. It's interesting that Peter is never mentioned as being Andrew's brother. Now, there's a couple different takes on that. Some believe that Andrew was the younger brother, so that's why he was listed that way. Others will state that it's because Simon Peter occupied a more prominent role in the twelve disciples. In either case, uh, maybe both. Andrew is also referenced indirectly in passages that mention the disciples as a group in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. In the four apostolic lists we find in Scripture, Andrew is listed in two separate positions. In Matthew and Luke, he's listed second underneath Simon Peter. In Mark and Acts, he's listed fourth underneath Peter, James, and John. Now, what I found interesting about these lists is that Luke and the book of Acts are supposedly written by the same individual. And then he lists them in two, he lists Andrew in two separate positions in each book. In the book of Mark, Andrew is more prominent than in any other synoptic gospel or in Acts. Now, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John was written much later. It's considered, in a lot of ways, separate from the other three. The first mention of Andrew and Mark 
in the book of Mark, Jesus is calling him and Peter to be fishers of men. Andrew and Peter respond immediately. Then we find Andrew going to Simon Peter's house alongside James and John in Capernaum, where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Andrew appears next in Mark's list of the twelve disciples, where he appears fourth underneath Peter, James, and John. This is the list that we find Jesus commissioning the twelve to go out and preach the gospel with authority to heal and cast out devils. Andrew is mentioned for the final time in Mark in reference to the Mount of Olives, where Andrew, Peter, James, and John ask Jesus privately about his earlier temple pronouncement. The mention of Andrew in relation to the account of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law on the Mount of Olives is not mentioned anywhere else. In both instances, the same four disciples are mentioned together, namely Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. On a Wednesday night, if you all can make it through this, you'll be doing pretty good. I promise, though, at the end, we'll tie it all together. Andrew, in in the book of Matthew, is mentioned only twice. Jesus calls Andrew and Simon Peter to follow him and become fishers of men. They immediately respond. Also, Andrew appears in Matthew's list of apostles. In Matthew's list, Andrew appears second underneath Simon Peter. And again, this is the same list where we find them being commissioned to go and preach, to have authority to heal and over unclean spirits. In the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, we find Andrew mentioned only once by name in each book. In both instances, he's listed among the 12 men Jesus called to be his apostles. In Luke, Andrew is mentioned second underneath Simon Peter. In Acts, he's listed fourth. The men that are listed in the book of Luke are named by Jesus only after completing an entire night of prayer. And we spoke about that last week. In the book of John, Andrew is more prominent than in any of the synoptic gospels, including Mark. John's account of Andrew is also much more detailed. We find things in the book of John that just don't appear in the other three. For example, in John we find Andrew at first alongside John the Baptist with one other as he proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God. Afterward, Andrew begins to follow Jesus. Jesus then invites the two men to join him. John's account never mentions the name of the other disciple. Some speculate this other disciple was Philip. Others speculate that it was indeed the writer of this gospel, John, the beloved, John the Revelator, however you'd like to refer to him. Afterwards, Andrew finds his brother Simon Peter and declares, we have found the Messiah, and introduces him. In the book of John, we find Andrew and Philip together quite a bit. Again, first found together at the feeding of the 5,000. They also appear together during an encounter with the Greek crowd during the Passover. These Greeks approached Philip and request to see Jesus. Now the account suggests that the Greek crowd was maybe uncertain as to whether Jesus was going to receive Gentiles at this point or not. The reaction of Philip seems to suggest he was uncertain as well. He went to go get, grab Andrew. 
Well, Andrew, together with Philip, approached Jesus. Because of this account and because of some apocryphal accounts that we'll read about later, he is known as the mediator for Greek proselytes. Andrew is. We see different and varying accounts between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John, but they are not contradictory. Rather, they are complementary. And you will find this very occasionally in Scripture, particularly if you read uh, accounts, parallel accounts between Kings and Chronicles. You see a few uh, differences between the two accounts. And that will immediately cause people to say, see, there's a contradiction. The Bible is in error. Well, just look into it a little bit. In every single instance, you'll find that they're not contradictory at all. As we find in the Gospel of John. Andrew's end. How did Andrew end up? It's very probable from the accounts that we receive today that uh, the Apostle Andrew met his end in Achaia, in Greece, by means of crucifixion. Now, Andrew and the early church fathers, what did the early church fathers have to say about Andrew? I found this in the Lexham Bible Dictionary. It says this, and I quote, Andrew is a source of mild interest in the literature of the traditional early Christian fathers. Many of the references are anchored in details provided in the New Testament. In the early 2nd century A.D., the church father Papias mentions Andrew in comments about his preference for apostolic oral tradition. Now, Papias is, at this time, the bishop of Hierapolis in the first half of the 2nd century A.D., He was associated with the Apostle John and a man by the name of Polycarp. If you've read anything about church fathers, you know who that is. Maybe that'll be an interesting study for another time otherwise. In any case, uh, he goes on to say this, this Papias, quote, If anyone came who had been a follower of the elders, referencing the, the 12 apostles, I questioned him in regard to the words of the elders, what Andrew or what Peter said, or what was said by Philip or by Thomas or by James or by John or by Matthew or by any other of the disciples of the Lord, and what things Aristian and the presbyter John, the disciples of the Lord, say. For I did not think that what was to be gotten from the books would profit me as much as what came from the living and abiding voice. In other words, this individual, uh, he would rather hear the direct words of the apostles himself rather than uh, hearing it secondhand. You and I, of course, don't have that luxury. No, no one's that old. We all heard it secondhand. (laughs) The Muratorian fragment, also known as the Muratorium uh, Canon, It contains one of the oldest canonical lists of the New Testament from early Christianity, thought to have been written around A.D. 170 to 200. Okay. That thing also mentions Andrew in relation to the origin of the Gospel of John. The ninth line through the sixteenth line of this fragment reads, 
The fourth of the Gospels is that of John, one of the disciples, to his fellow disciples and bishops who had been urging him to write. He said, fast with me from today to three days, and what will be revealed to each one, let us tell it to one another. In the same night it was revealed to Andrew, one of the apostles, that John should write down all things in his own name while all of them should review it. In other words, they felt like they were being led of the Lord to fast and and ask the Lord direction as to whether or not the Apostle John should write his apostle, his epistle. At least according to this fragment. Bruce noted that the only detail of historical worth in the account was the implication that others shared in the publication of the gospel beyond the evangelist. This, Bruce maintained, may have been, quote, an intelligent reference from John chapter 21, verse 24. The church fathers of the early centuries gave few details about Andrew in discussing Judaism, Epiphanius, Epiphanius, drew a comparison between Abraham and Jesus' early disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Like them, Abraham, quote, parted from his family when summoned by God's bidding and obedience to his summoner. He also describes these same four disciples as Jesus' quote, original choices, unquote. Uh, this individual makes several references to Jesus' call of Andrew as reflected in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. He did this in refutation of the Alagoi sect that did not acknowledge the Gospel of John or the book of Revelation. Their rationale was that John's books do not agree with the other apostles. Again, a reference to supposed contradictions that simply don't exist. Several of the church fathers additionally preserve competing traditions about where Andrew ministered. Eusebius of Caesarea, writing in AD 325, recounts that Andrew ministered in Scythia. Gregory of Nazianzus identified Andrew with Eprius. Jerome, in a letter dated AD 395 or 396, places him at Achaia. Which is probably the best bet because most references say that that's where he perished. We find a lot about the Apostle Andrew in apocryphal sources. Now, although we have a much wider range of references to Andrew in the apocryphal sources, none of them are quite as legitimate or as historically verifiable. The information we find here is much less anchored in the details of the New Testament and is much more fanciful in scope. In the 4th century, Eusebius mentioned in a discussion which books did and did not belong to the New Testament canon. He organized the books he discussed into four broad categories. First category he put as the recognized books. The second category was the disputed books. The third would be the spurious books. And the fourth, those utilized by aberrant groups. The most prominent apocryphal work we find about Andrew is called the Acts of Andrew. And Eusebius places this book in the fourth category, describing such books as, quote, those cited by the heretics under the name of the apostles, including the Acts of Andrew and John and the other apostles, which no one belonging to the succession of ecclesiastical writers 
as deemed worthy of mention in his writings. In other words, Eusebius didn't think much of the Acts of Andrew. However, as it mentions Andrew, it's included in this study. Just be warned, it's an apocryphal work. Take it with a large grain of salt. We must reconstruct the text of the Acts of Andrew from a wide variety of sources that provide differing details about Andrew's activities. The best-known source of this Acts of Andrew is the epitome of Gregory of Tours. His account was reduced a lot from the original because he feared uh, its excessive verbosity. In other words, it was really long and didn't say a lot. Some of us know people that talk like that. (coughs) In his account, we find the following. Andrew's missionary endeavors following Jesus' ascension. He begins in Achaia, ministers throughout modern-day Turkey, and returns to Macedonia, performing various miracles along the way. Also, preaching most vehemently that all people should be celibate. In fact, if you're married, you should not be married anymore. Probably not. In Achaia, he heals and and converts the proconsul's wife, Maximilla, and later converts the proconsul's brother. After Maximilla, Maximilla chooses Christianity and leaves her husband, he has Andrew arrested, scourged, and crucified. Maximilla embalms and buries him. That's a very summarized account of the Acts of Andrew. A lot of Christian scholars agree that this was simply a Christian attempt to transform Greco-Roman myth by retelling the story of Andrew in terms of Homer's Odyssey. There there does seem to be a lot of parallels between the two. Others state this is merely a propaganda document attempting to call readers to true philosophy in contrast to paganism. There are other apocryphal sources of note that we'll just mention in passing. The Gospel of Peter, written in the 2nd century A.D., states, But I, Simon Peter, and my brother Andrew took our nets and went to the sea. The epistle to the apostles, mid to late 2nd century A.D., mentions Andrew twice. The Gnostic work, Pistis Sophia, late 3rd, early 4th century A.D., mentions Andrew several times. The Gospel of Bartholomew mentions him, and he is mentioned in several other apocryphal works. Andrew in later ecclesial traditions. Okay, as we progress through history, we find Andrew's prominence growing and growing to a degree not really warranted by the biblical account. Now, I'm not saying Andrew's not important. I mean, he was one of the twelve. But the prominence he achieves later in history is it's inflated. I'll put it that way especially in the Orthodox tradition. In that, he is referred to as uh, Protocletos, or the first called. This is based on John chapter 1, 35-40, where Andrew is the first of the named disciples that Jesus calls. Okay, in the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, we find a more specific account of this and reasons why. It says this, Even after the composition of the Acts of Andrew, the Apostle remained relatively obscure for nearly six centuries. 
Because of its popularity amongst Manachians, the Acts of Andrew itself was poorly transmitted except for the Myrmidon story, which soon circulated independently as the Acts of the as the Acts of Andrew and Mattathias in the city of the cannibals. That was something else that was mentioned in the Acts of Andrew, is that he went to rescue Mattathias from the cannibals. In 357 A.D., Constantius II deposited the apostles' punitive, punitive remains in the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople along those of Luke and Timothy. By the 6th century, Patras and Sinope boasted of having been evangelized by Andrew but there is little evidence that Christians elsewhere gave the apostle special attention. Sometime in the 8th century, however, Andrew was pressed into service again to legitimize Byzantine claims to apostolic succession. goes on to explain this. For centuries, the church in Rome had claimed Peter as its founder. On the other hand, Byzantium, largely the product of Constantine's relocation of the imperial capital, could, not claim, could claim no founding apostle. This was not so problematic when Rome and Byzantium were on good terms, but when the two great ecclesiastical centers parted ways, Byzantium was in desperate need of apostolic pedigree. Andrew was perfectly suited for the purpose. According to the Gospel of John, he was the first of the apostles to come to Jesus, and later he brought his brother Peter, Rome's favorite, to the Lord. The acts of Andrew and traditions derived from it had placed Andrew's ministry in the region of the Black Sea, and if one can trust the epitome of Gregory of Tours, it's a big if, the Acts, in fact, sent the Apostle to Byzantium. Furthermore, from the time of Constantius II, Andrew's relics reposed in Constantinople's Church of the Holy Apostles. So in other words, thank God we have Andrew, because now we have an apostolic succession here in Byzantium. In fact, I found a, a quote from, uh, who's the current Pope? No, it's uh, B. Benedict, right? Pope Benedict. Calling the, uh, the uh, bishop, whoever they have in the Greek Orthodox Church, his brother. Because... Pope Benedict represents Peter, and this guy represents Andrew. So they're brothers. <clears throat> In the West, Andrew became patron of several countries, including Greece, Russia, and Scotland. In the medieval period, he became associated with an X-shaped cross at Dacuset, or Saltire Cross, now known as St. Andrew's Cross. It's just an uh, X. In the early 13th century, crusaders transported Andrew's alleged remains from Constantinople to Amalfi, Italy. In Celtic lore, the 4th century monk Regulus is credited with bringing Andrew's remains to Scotland. Different remains. Not the same. Greek Orthodoxy and segments of the Western Church, including Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, and Lutheranism, observed the feast day of Andrew on November 30th. And in Scotland and Romania, St. Andrew's Day is an official national day. Okay. Ah, you guys still with me? Fantastic. Now, we can sort all this out. 
learning from the Apostle Andrew. So what do we really know about him? What do we know about the Apostle Andrew? Well, one thing we know is he has a Greek name. His brother was given an Aramaic name. We know his name means manly. We understand that he's just not mentioned a whole lot in the New Testament. Although he also seems to be recognized as an important, albeit quiet, member of this group. He's known as the first called. He led his brother Simon Peter to Jesus. He was the one Philip came to in the matter of the Greeks. And he was singled out as being the one, along with Peter, James, and John, who inquired about Jesus' teaching on the temple. Application. This is what I came up with as far as what Andrew could teach me. The first thing is we don't need to be prominent in the eyes of those around us, only in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Now, we find in Scripture that Andrew is rarely mentioned at all in some instances. When he is mentioned, it's an important point. It's very important points when they're being commissioned. Uh, Obviously, when they're being called initially. He's mentioned in the Greek account where he acted as a kind of a mediator between the Greeks and Jesus Christ. He's mentioned in the, in the meeting of the 5,000. He's, he's portrayed as someone quiet, but someone who is respected enough to come to for counsel or advice. And I appreciate that. He's not, he's definitely not Simon Peter. Okay? We'll talk about Simon Peter later, and that guy is on the other end of the spectrum. He's just talk first and pick up the mess afterward. Andrew wasn't like that at all. <clears throat> he seems to me a very soft-spoken individual, but one endued with wisdom, an inner strength that is manifest in a few different locations. And that is someone worthy of emulating. We don't necessarily, in fact, we don't ever need to be the center of attention. We don't need to be the one that everyone is looking to. But it's really nice when someone does come to us to have a ready answer. It's nice to be looked up to as someone who might be able to help me in my time of need. That's the kind of person I would like to be. As someone... When someone has a question, when someone is disputing doctrine, when someone is going through a a tough situation and they're confused and they're scared, they don't know what to do, that they would feel safe, that they would feel comfortable coming to me and expecting that I could help them in that situation. That's a good place to be. That's a good person to be. That's worthy of emulation. He won his loudmouthed brother to the Lord. And he ends up becoming the chief of the twelve. 
But I don't think he I don't think he minded that at all. I don't it's possible it may not have even come on his radar. If I read him correctly, he wouldn't have liked that position anyway. <clears throat> it's a good thing when children, when people you win to the Lord go on and do greater things than you. That's okay. Honestly, I'd much rather have that than the other. They fall back away or they just kind of turn into a lump. Don't do a whole lot. I'd rather they took whatever I can give them and run with it. Start off a lot farther along than I did and keep moving forward. That is exactly what I want to see. I learned through Andrew that those that are quiet amongst us, those that wouldn't consider themselves assertive or bold in speech or in action, can still be mightily used of God. They can still be a very important part of ministry, of the plan of God. And this speaks to me perhaps more than others, because when I came to the Lord, I was, well, I've said before, I was a rather angry individual. When I got angry, I could be bold and assertive. But otherwise, when I calmed down, I was quite the opposite. I was not, I was very quiet. I was very content to stand in the corner and watch everyone else do their thing. People watcher, that kind of person. Very happy to do that. And when I first came to the Lord, into this Pentecostal experience, it seemed to me like everything had to be loud. The preaching was loud. The music was loud. If I'm not worshiping loud, I'm not worshiping right. And that's the impression I got. Now, I don't know what your opinion is on that. If you want to worship loud, man, fantastic. I'm fine with that. I'm not, I'm not a loud person. And so that really, it took me a long time to get over that hurdle, to kind of resolve that within myself. And so uh, understanding through Scripture, through a man like Andrew, that I can just be me, and that's okay. God created us the way he did. And that's okay. Now, he's going to perfect that. Along with my personality, there's a lot of baggage and there's a lot of negatives that God is still trying to work out in me. But there's some positives in there too. And he wants to use those. He doesn't want me to be an Apostle Peter. He doesn't want me to be a Jeff Arnold. We have a Jeff Arnold. I don't think we need another Jeff Arnold. (laughs) One is too much. (laughs) <laughs> Almost. I love Jeff Arnold. But I'm not him. And so, uh, I'm me. And that's fine. That's okay. And you're you. And that's okay. And God can use you just like that. 
God can use you just the way you are. Perfected, sanctified, but just the way you are. Strength takes many forms. But those displays that we often think of as being strong are almost always a sign of weakness. When you see someone coming with this, this bravado and this bluster and the, this, this overly hypercharged aggression, that's often a sign of insecurity and weakness. The real strength, especially in Christianity, comes when you can sit there and endure the storm. When you can sit there and endure whatever Jesus asks you to endure. That's strength. When you can endure temptation. When you can endure test and trial. When you can endure the enemy continually coming knocking. Continually poking and prodding. Testing. And you stand strong. That's true strength. When you're in the midst of persecution... And with a soft answer, you turn away wrath. That's strength. Andrew could see the answer to the situation, but couldn't recognize it as being the solution. Here's where we kind of see a negative example in Andrew. In the feeding of the 5,000, he was looking smack in the middle of the answer, but he didn't recognize it. Here's a boy with a few loaves and fishes. And Jesus is probably like, I don't know what it matters. This this crowd is huge. Uh, Almost. Looking back in my life, maybe you could do the same. I have more often than not been staring at the solution to my problem. A scripture something Jesus had told me before, something I heard in preaching, a worship service. And God will even bring it to my mind. But I don't do anything with it. I don't put the two together. Later on, I'm like, man, I wish I'd have known. I did know that. I was told that. When we're in the middle of something, our need, someone else's need, God has an answer. God is always the answer. And the more we bring those needs to him, the more answers we're going to see come from him. But they don't always come from the direction we're expecting. We all know that. We all understand that. God is not a one-trick pony. He doesn't answer things one way and one way only. He has an infinite amount of variables. He has an infinite amount of paths to get the answer to us. If not, He can create another one. He can do it any way He wants. And so, we're expecting an answer over here, and it sneaks up behind us. We ought not be surprised by that. It's in those times that the miracle is the greatest. 
When I started praying, when I really started praying, trying to learn how to pray, I started by giving him specifics. And sometimes that is what we need to do. But I would give him specifics as to how I expected the answer to come. This is, this is what I'm expecting to see. And, you know, that frustrated me for a while. Sometimes, sometimes it happened. A lot of times it didn't. Now, when I pray, I just tell God, this is what I need. However you want to answer it, that's great. And the reason I do that is because I want to see God do something crazy. I want to see God do something weird, something I'm not expecting. I want him to blow my mind, expand this little pea brain of mine a little bit more. And I've found that when I pray that way, whenever I can, like I said, I understand there are sometimes we need to pray specifics. And that's we need to pray specifically. God likes that. Then he answers specifically. But when I can, I like to give him as much leeway as I can. He has it anyway, but I want him to know that I know that. I recognize that. And I want you to just do whatever you want to do in this, whatever you feel is, is right, and I'm going to worship you until it happens. And then I'm going to worship you because it happens. <clears throat> I get so much more excited when, that, when, when I pray prayers like that, expecting that kind of an answer, looking for that kind of a solution. It makes me excited. Andrew had the heart of a disciple-maker. As soon as he met Jesus, he found someone to bring to him. He brought his brother. We found the Messiah. you got to meet him. He had the heart of a disciple-maker. We need that as well. Why wouldn't we bring people to Jesus? Why wouldn't we introduce someone to this person that did so has done so much for us, who means so much to us? He wasn't afraid to ask questions when he didn't understand something. Jesus made his pronouncement about the temple. It's going to be raised to the ground. He didn't understand, so he asked him. He didn't assume. He didn't make up an answer, so he didn't look dumb. Already by this time, other people had come to him. It's possible, at least in his mind, I kind of got a reputation for knowing things. I can't look ignorant. I can't look like I don't have an answer. He didn't care about that. Right in front of the other three. He inquired, what did you mean by that? What does that mean? It's okay to not have all the answers. There's only one person that has all the answers. 
That's Jesus Christ. We'll get more and more answers by and by. The more situations we face, the more trials we overcome. We'll get more and more answers, but we'll never have all of them answered. Every question I get answered, you know, it's kind of fun. I like research. That is, that's a thing for me. I like diving down deep, staying down long, coming up dry. That's, that's my thing. That's not everybody's thing. But it's mine. And so, when I get a question, when I read something in Scripture, I'm like, either, man, I didn't notice that before. That's kind of interesting. Let's look into that further. Someone, someone else poses a question. I hadn't considered that. That's a good question. Start looking into it. And I get an answer. About 99 times out of 100, after I get the answer, now I've got yet more questions. Okay, but if that's true, then what about this over here? Oh, now I've got to look at that. But that's okay, because I like doing that. And then I find, yeah, and then I find other questions. And it just keeps going on and on and on and on. I'm never going to get all the answers to my questions. But for me, that I mean, getting the answer is kind of half the fun for me. But sometimes you need an answer. Sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes you're in the midst of a situation and I need an answer now. This isn't, this isn't something I'm enjoying. I need Jesus to show up now. But we're never, ever going to get all of our questions answered. Some questions that we have, we're going to take to the grave with us. Some questions that people have, there's just no good answer. We don't know everything. We don't have all knowledge, all wisdom. God has an answer, and if He wants to share that with us, that would be awesome. If He decides not to, that's okay too then we must not need to know. Some stuff He's just not going to answer because He wants us to trust Him. He wants us to trust Him. Nobody likes not having the answer. Nobody likes not knowing. But sometimes we just have to trust Him. He forsook Jesus along with the other disciples, and yet He ended up doing something wondrous, something miraculous him afterward. He messed up big, just like the rest of them did. They all ran. They all forsook Jesus in his time of need. But he was restored. And he ended up doing wondrous things. Peter wasn't the only one that was restored. They all were, save one. <clears throat> They were all restored. And they all ended up doing great things. Miraculous things. They started this church. They established Christ's kingdom on earth. It was them that God entrusted with that. After he ascended, he entrusted these 12 men with that task to establish his kingdom. And they did. 
In the end, the Apostle Andrew died a horrific death, death by scourging and crucifixion, as the account goes, if it's accurate. Most we're going to find ended up very similarly. A martyr's death. But he died with his faith intact. Andrew and the other apostles, they faced impossible situations. They had no organization. They had no church. They had nothing. They had a commission. They had a command. That was it. They had no friends in the world to help them. All they had was the Spirit of God leading them. And with that, through that, they did everything that they did. No friends. No one on their side. The enemy, quite literally, in their face. But they pushed through. They kept pushing through until God's kingdom was established. It's an amazing account. And they weren't what you would consider brave men before they received the Holy Ghost. They all fled. It didn't take a whole lot for them to flee. But after they were filled with the Spirit of God, after they were made sure of their commission and of their calling, nothing shook them anymore. They persevered to the very end. And that is most certainly something worth emulating today. Let's all stand. Jesus, you are a mighty God. I thank you for your persevering power. The idea that you can transform normal, ordinary men and women into something supernatural that you can use for your glory, for your purpose, no matter what happens. That's something I want to be a part of. I pray, O oh God, that you would use each of us within the sound of my voice exactly like that, that you would call us to great things. You have commissioned us to great things. Help us to realize that calling, Lord. Help us to persevere and help us to push forward in the face of whatever it is we're facing, in the face of whatever it is we're going to face, until the very end when you call us home, help us to endure to the end. Use us mightily, I pray, as you use these men. Let your name be glorified through us as it was glorified through them. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.